0: Thank you very much, Jim. It's, uh, I, I learned my best economics at and I, I mean, you're still my teacher and boss uh, intellectually, uh, and it's a double pleasure to to really uh, to follow Stan and John. I think these are two very hard acts to follow. But what I wanted to do today is to give you the international dimension. Uh, you know, John showed you those charts where uh, the the leverage was increasing dramatically, and um, I think. One of the problems I have with uh, the way that some macro models are written these days, and uh, it's not the only one, but I think perhaps the biggest one, is that macro models and many macroeconomists still think of the crisis as a big shock. So things were going fine, and there was a massive shock, and then suddenly we're in this mess. Uh, Whereas I think that uh, if you you look at the period before the crisis, things were not right. Uh, There were things happening in the decade before the crisis which meant that there were vulnerabilities. And I just wanted to focus on that in this, uh, in this uh, set of comments and put some, put some uh, international context to both uh, what, uh, what Stan talked about this morning about macro potential policy, uh, but also to put uh, John's remarks about UK banking in the, in the international context as well. And so I'll, I'll be using the grandiose uh, term global liquidity. And this is something that uh, commentators bandy about and throw about. Uh, Um, in in the newspapers, but it's very ill-defined. But I think we we can get somewhat close to that. Uh, uh, And as John alluded, it's really the banking sector which is behind global liquidity, uh, and it's the risk-taking behavior, and the pro-cyclical nature of the risk-taking behavior which um, drives global liquidity. And it turns out that it's the global European banks uh, that were were the most important uh, conduits for the transmission of global liquidity before the crisis. It's it's not even um, the US banks. And um, I'll make the somewhat controversial and somewhat provocative claim that the European global banks were really behind the subprime crisis in the US. Uh, But it's not just the European global banks. It's a combination of European global banks and the US dollar. So it's it's that combination which makes this particularly interesting. Uh, So I'll um, say something about the US, Europe, and and the emerging economies. But uh, the main part of the, the prepared remarks today will be on the analogies between Korea and Spain. So you might think, well, uh, what are the similarities? Well, I think they're similar sized economies, similar sized populations. GDP is also fairly similar. It Depends on the euro exchange rate, but it's roughly the same. Uh, both countries have experienced major crises. And it turns out that the, that the analogies are very, very close. And it has to do with uh, capital flows. So let me start with this chart, uh, which shows you the assets and liabilities of the foreign banks in the US. So this is from the Fed's webpage. Uh, webpage. I put pointing numbers, so the positive numbers are the assets of the foreign banks in the US, and downward, uh, and the negative numbers are the liabilities. So liabilities. So, read liabilities as where you get the money and think of assets as how you spend that money. Okay, so, they, uh, they raise money by borrowing money, clearly, because they're intermediaries, they borrow in order to lend, and then they lend. So the blue is cash, and you see that cash uh, jumped dramatically after Lehman, so that, uh, that jagged line there, uh, so this is, this is Lehman right here. So, foreign banks are holding a lot more cash, which means deposits at the Federal Reserve. And as any bank um, does, they, they hold a lot of securities and they hold a lot of loans. So this pink series is loans and green is, is uh, security holding. But let me draw your attention to the red, which is uh, very interesting. It changes sign. And um, if you look at that, it's, it's a very interesting series in that it changes sign uh, for only about 10 years. Now, you, you, can, uh, you can extend this back to 1970. And it's always been negative, except for this very expe- exceptional period uh, between 2001 and 2011. This is the net inter-office assets of the foreign banks in the US. So to put it, um, to put it uh, much more simply, this is the lending that the branch of a foreign bank does um, to its headquarters. So normally a branch is a lending outpost. You bring money from headquarters and then you lend to local borrowers. Or to companies from your home country doing business in that jurisdiction, so we normally expect a negative number. So if you if you have branches that are lending outpost, we expect the money to come from headquarters to the, to the branch, except for this period between 2001 and 2011, where the number was positive and very massively positive. It uh, reached the peak of 600 billion dollars. So 600 billion is is a very large amount. I mean that is uh, so. Uh, you know Lehman when it went bust was 700 billion, um, uh, and the the um, the uh, 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 the GDP of Korea uh, in, in in dollar terms would be around 900 billion. So this is a, so this is a very ripping numbers. So to say that it's positive means that the branches ceased to become lending outposts. Instead, they were bo- they were lending money to the headquarters. In other words, they were they were raising money in the US and sending it to, it turns out, to Frankfurt, to Paris, and, and to London, and to Zurich. So they became funding sources. And so the question is, where did this money go? So it says, uh, I'll show you a series of charts in this uh, detective story. So we want to find out where this money went. And uh, the short answer is that, um, um, well, let, let's first find out how they raised the money. They, they raised the money by borrowing from the money market funds in the US. So the US has these bank-like, these <coughs> deposit-like um, mutual funds um, where they take, uh, um, take retail deposits of money, and then they invest in short-term securities. And this chart shows you what those short-term securities were. What were they investing in? And the answer is 80% of it was uh, the paper issued by banks. So 80% of the assets of money market funds were the obligations of banks. So money market funds were really the base of the shadow banking system in that respect. And 50% of the assets of the money market funds were the obligations of European banks. So here is uh, the green is the UK banks. The blue is uh, Eurozone, other than the crisis-stricken countries. And the, well Belgium isn't quite, quite there, but uh, the, um, the large Euro-area countries. So this is how they raise the money. So this is all, so so they're borrowing in the U.S. from uh, U.S. companies and U.S. households. Where was it going? Um, It was actually coming back to the U.S. A lot of it was coming back. So there was a return trip. Money was being raised in the U.S. It went to Frankfurt and Paris and London and it all came back to the U.S. And we can see it from uh, from the balance of payments figures. So these green bars pointing downwards are the capital outflows through the banking sector. And these are the European banks sending the money to headquarters, and it's coming back into the U.S. with the capital inflows, which are the red bars. And these are the purchases of foreign, uh, these are the foreign uh, private holdings of U.S. securities other than treasuries. So, the mortgage-backed securities and the complex securities based on mortgage-backed securities were being bought by uh, these investors who had actually financed the money um, in the U.S. And so, this is the picture <coughs> one should have in mind that. Um, uh, there was, a, if you like, an offshore banking sector whose primary purpose was to raise US dollar funding and then uh, invest, and then reinvest it in the US. And it was this offshore banking activity which just grew to huge proportions. And it's in this sense that uh, you can think of the subprime crisis as having its origin in this kind of flow. So it's the European banks dealing with the US dollar Uh, transactions, which really was was the core. The other aspect of this is that uh, although most of the money actually came back to the US, uh, some of it went elsewhere. So uh, you can imagine the global banks raising money from the uh, wholesale funding markets, these uh, money market funds, and then they were lending it on, this radiating out, this flow radiating out to all corners of the world. Uh, And Korea would be one of the uh, destinations there, but also Australia, um, New Zealand, a lot of the countries that are highly reliant on wholesale funding would be getting their funding from uh, from these global banks. Uh, so here was so here's one fact that uh, may may surprise you. Uh, if you think of the U.S. dollar lending in Korea, uh, and you ask who were the lenders, you might have thought, well, it clearly must be U.S. banks who are lending in U.S. dollars to borrowers in Korea, uh, or it, or it could be Japanese banks. Well, the well the answer turns out to be more than 50% of the U.S. dollar lending was done by European banks. Uh, So some of the money that was raised in the U.S. found its way uh, all over the world. And this period before the crisis shows um, uh, synchronized flow. Uh, So this is a series of charts from the Bank for International Settlements who keep track of cross-border banking activity. And it shows you the total lending by the BIS reporting banks, so these are global banks, to borrowers in the countries uh, that are listed on the right. And I've normalized the series so that everyone is is 100 in March of 2003. And what you see is that um, these five years leading up to Lehman uh, saw this synchronized boom in cross-border lending, capital inflows into these countries. Although, after the crisis, we see a divergence. So you know, whereas Ireland and Spain have really come down very sharply, uh, Brazil, for example, in the, in the Brazilian colors, uh, in, the, in the yellow and green, you see that that's, uh, that's going up very sharply. But it's the period before which is, I think, very striking. Now, these numbers are very large. If you, if you look at the, on the left-hand axis, we're thinking about, we're, we're, we're looking at uh, magnitudes of four or five times, um, uh, four or five-fold increases in the net claims. Um, between 2003 and 2008, some countries went through even bigger booms. Here are the, here are the Baltic countries. Uh, and if you look on the, on the left-hand axis, we're talking about 20 or 25-fold increases over these five years. Uh, huge capital inflows. This is what really drove the, the lending boom. And um, um, it really begs the question, of what was driving them? What, what, what was driving this, these kind of flows? What's special about banks? And John's already al- alluded to some of the special features of banking. But let's really try and um, see what the consequences are, and then contrast this with the way that you would behave uh, as, a, as a prudent household, if you like. So here's a, here's a balance sheet of a bank. Uh, and the bank is an intermediary, so it borrows in order to lend. So the liabilities are how it raises money, and the assets are how, uh, how it lends uh, the money. Equity is your own capital. It's, it's the seed money that you have, and then on top of that you would borrow and then lend out the whole lot. And the way that we normally think about leverage changing is through this diagram, where we say, well, you know, the assets are whatever are the good things that deserve funding, and that's in a way independent of, the, uh, of, of how you raise the financing. This is the classic modern miller theorem, that uh, if you like, how, um, uh, how you finance the assets uh, are really Uh, Irrelevant as your as your total funding cost. But here's an example where uh, you would increase leverage by having more debt. uh, um, For example, by buying back equity, you would buy back shares by (coughs) issuing bonds. Now, but the way that banks behave is more like this, where leverage changes, not through changes in the composition of the liabilities. It changes Mm -hmm. its leverage by just an absolute change in how much it lends. So it's a it's an increase in the balance sheet size itself rather than how you finance a fixed set of, uh, set of assets. How do we know this? Well, uh, here's a scatter chart that shows you this, and, uh, and I've picked Barclays because uh, Barclays are very much in the news. And this is, um, so let me spend two minutes on this, on this chart. I think this one chart um, illustrates exactly what John was referring to earlier with the, with the risk-weighted assets and, and the leverage. So the horizontal axis tells you how much the total lending of Barclays has changed over two years. So these are in billions of uh, pounds. And we're asking how much of that change in the lending is is reflected in the change in the debt of Barclays, and how much of it is reflected in the change in the equity. And the red line shows you the relationship between the change in the lending and the change in debt. And the slope there is (coughs) 0.9974. so it's essentially one. So, there's a pound for fa- so for every pound change in lending, there is one pound change in debt. And that means that the counterpart, which is the, the equity, has uh, zero changes. It's, it's essentially flat. What's even more striking is the, is the dark dots. The dark diamonds give you the relationship between total lending and the risk-weighted assets. So um, what it shows you is that even in those periods when Barclays was lending increasing lending dramatically, it, there was barely uh, an increase in the risk-weighted assets. So if you, that's to say, the overall riskiness of the bank showed very little change, even though the balance sheet of the bank was expanding dramatically. Another way of saying that is the risk per pound of lending was shrinking dramatically, at least in terms of the, of the measured risks. Uh, and you can think of this as a way, so you can think of this as uh, the mechanism that actually blew up the. Up the balance sheet where if the measured risks are low, then if the bank is trying to maximize profit, it will lend as much as it can, subject to various constraints that it faces. You could also think of it going the other direction, the causality going the other direction. The measured risks were low precisely because the bank was expanding lending so much. So if the, if the credit is so plentiful, then various measures of spread. So the price of lending, the price of credit falls, and therefore that's going to depress uh, these measured risk measures as well, and that means that we have, we've come full circle. So you lend more because lending is less risky, and less uh, lending is is less risky because you're lending more, and so we we have this uh, the feedback, uh, and the feedback operates exactly in reverse uh, on the way down. So even though you're shedding assets very dramatically, you're barely making a dent in your risk-weighted assets. So the bank still feels that it needs to shed more. Uh, and therefore we have this credit crunch. Here's an example of a French bank, this is Société Générale. Not uh, as dramatic as Barclays, but you see this flat, dark dots. This is the cyclical nature of lending. Now there's a very important question here, which is why did European banks expand like this? And I think this is a really crucial policy issue. And um, this is important not only for accountability and for uh, in ascertaining who was at fault, But I think it's it's absolutely crucial that we we actually draw these lessons before we move on to the next stage. It's still um, speculation as to why they did this, but I think two elements uh, that that, um, figure very highly as candidate hypotheses would be uh, Basel II, which didn't have a leverage cap. And funnily enough, the advent of the euro. And what the euro did was to allow cross-border financing, but in your own currency. And that's, and that's never happened before. It's, it's virtually never happened before, that you borrow from other countries' banks, but in your own currency. And that meant that the perceived riskiness of lending cross-border uh, just dropped dramatically. So uh, when we think about Spain and why Spain is in its current predicament, um, there is the, the debate about uh, fiscal profligacy and so on. In fact, for Spain, they had current you know They had budget surpluses leading up to the crisis. Their debt ratio was 36% of GDP in 2007. So this wasn't a fiscal profligacy issue. Uh, but instead, it was very much uh, to do with capital flows and property bubbles and excessive lending. Um, and this is very much, if you like, the, uh, the you know, Spain is where the fault line is on that second bullet point. The fact that you can borrow in your own currency but cross-border. What I want to do is to, is to draw an analogy between, um, between Spain and Korea. Uh, and, and, and let me do it with this diagram. So suppose that uh, you, you have a initial situation like this where, uh, think of this as an old building society. So building society is prevented from using wholesale funding. It, uh, it takes deposits and then lends to local people in this area. So it's a very, it's a very uh, boring business model, but something which is very predictable. And the total size uh, is limited by the fundamentals. It's basically how much people save uh, gets transferred to the younger generations. So if you've watched um, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, that's exactly the kind of uh, scene you should have in mind. It's a, it's a very localized bank, highly regulated in its business model. It essentially uh, takes savings from older generation Um, and then lends to the younger people who want to buy houses. Now suppose you open up this business and you allow wholesale funding. And suppose that uh, we're in this phase where the banks feel that they should expand. Well, how how will they expand? They're going to expand by searching for ways of lending more money. But the intermediary, so they have to find, they have to borrow more money in order to lend more money. That's what an intermediary does. But We've just assumed that uh, with the saving is limited. It's the local people. I mean, their, their financial wherewithal is, is, is well known. So, you, so what would you do? You'd actually look abroad. You would look abroad and say, "Well, I can tap uh, these very, this now a very fashionable wholesale funding market abroad. There are lots of investors who think that uh, uh, we're doing very well. They're willing to lend us money. So it's the foreign creditors who will lend you money, which then finds new borrowers. What this means is that in practice, empirically, um, the lending that's financed with wholesale funding tends to be the one uh, which has the lower credit standards. Why? Well, because it's when you're expanding, it's when you're doing this expansion, and to the extent that the wholesale funding is coming from abroad, it's the lending that's financed with capital inflows uh, that is associated with the lowest lending standards. So it's in this sense the capital inflows. and uh, credit risk and financial crisis probability are all interlinked. So let me li- let me illustri- illustrate that with uh, with some charts from from Korea. <coughs> so this is a, a chart from uh, chart using Bank of Korea data that shows you some classes of wholesale funding on Korean banks' uh, balance sheets. So these are, if you like, the non-deposit sources of Korean bank lending. Um, let me focus on the red, which I think is the most dramatic. This is the, um, the liabilities of Korean banks uh, in foreign currency. Th- and this will be mostly in US dollars. Uh, what you see is that this, uh, the, the wholesale funding has this dramatic cyclical peaks and troughs. The first peak comes um, in, the of uh, in, in the middle of 1997. This is when Stan was at the IMF. Uh, this is the, the eve of the Korean or the eve of the, uh, the Asian financial crisis. then that, uh, that bubble bursts. And then we have a period of consolidation. And then from about 2003, this is the Korean counterpart to those charts that you saw of capital inflows, have this dramatic increase in uh, cross-border lending through the banking sector. And then uh, at the peak, uh, Lehman strikes, and then we have the consolidation thereafter. Now these are all different classes of wholesale funding, what you can do is to, is to say, well, what is the ratio of the wholesale funding to the core funding? Uh, so if you like, what's the ratio of the grey to the, to the white? Uh, that <coughs> ratio should be very informative. That should be very informative on the degree of risk-taking by the domestic banking sector. Uh, and I've been pushing um, this particular terminology, which is the non-core to core funding ratio of the banks. And if you plot it for the, for the Korean banks, it looks like this. So the non-core-to-core ratio. So, so what we're doing by dividing it by the core funding is to control for economic growth. So if you have very rapid growth in the country, um, the wealth is growing um, at the same pace. So we're controlling for the size of the economy. But if we see a cyclical trend like this, then this means that uh, if you see a rapid increase in non-core funding, this is a sign that the banking sector is taking A lot of risks, more risks than usual, and that means (coughs) that the new borrowers who are actually receiving uh, receiving credit at that point are ones that would not have qualified for lending before uh, these more relaxed credit standards. And it's it's this red funding is the one that runs uh, in the crisis. So in Korea, what happens is the red uh, bars are the capital inflows into the Korean banking sector. Uh, and so positive bars are capital inflows, negative bars are capital outflows. You see that uh, there is very sustained capital inflows for the banking sector before Lehman. And then once Lehman strikes, we have these downward-pointing red bars. Very, very dramatic uh, um, uh, capital outflows. Uh, this is what um, Guillermo Calvo calls a sudden stop. So there's, there's a pile of money coming in, and then suddenly uh, they do a 180-degree do a t- turn on, the, on a penny, and then they all go out. Equity equity flows look quite different. So, uh, although when you have a very bad day in the foreign foreign exchange market, the news broadcast uh, comes from the floor of the stock exchange. They say, "Well, you know, today the (coughs) Korean won crashed by this much." Uh And uh, in the background is the the stock exchange, with the implication that it's the selling of stocks that somehow driven this. But actually, if you look at the stock flow, if you look at the Flows in the in the equity sector. If anything, uh, it was positive during during the Lehman episode, and that makes a lot of sense because there was a lot of repatriation flows. So Korean investors who had who had, uh, invested abroad bring all their money back, and that out, and that outweighs the money that's going out through the through the equity sector. So it, it, again, uh, this really emphasizes the point that John made that uh, the focus should be on the banking sector. Now, the UK w- um, was not immune from this either. So this is a picture for the liabilities of Northern Rock. Uh, and Northern Rock um, uh, you know, had its run in 2007. This was the crisis that really kick-started the whole thing. It was the, the crisis that, uh, that heralded the, c- the, the global financial crisis. And you see this dramatic increase in the ratio of non-core to core. So the yellow is the retail deposits of Northern Rock over this nine-year period between the date that it went public, the date that it floated shares in the summer of 98, (coughs) to the eve of its uh, run in 2007. And actually, deposits doubled. But total lending increased six and a half times. So all the other stuff was funded with wholesale funding. But I want to focus on Spain, because um, uh, I think the. if we if we understand uh, the element of capital flows for the for the European crisis, I think it really um, uh, puts on the table very 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 important uh, items that would otherwise have been neglected, and uh, and this really echoes what John was saying earlier that for the banking union discussion to really uh, be guided on the, on the right track, we need to put all these prudential issues on the table. So. Although we focused... Uh, so there are three elements of the European crisis. I mean, th- it, is, it is clearly a sovereign crisis now. It's also a banking crisis. But it's a banking crisis uh, that's driven by a balance of payments crisis. So it's a cross-border element of banking. It's not simply like a US savings and loans crisis, where, which was just a domestic banking crisis. A, this is a cross-border banking crisis. And to, to put that in context, this is... Um, a chart from the Bank for International Settlements who, t- who, who look at the cross-border positions among the European banks. And um, they aggregate these series, and the red series give you the, um, the cross-border liabilities of the eurozone banks denominated in euros. Okay, so it's cross-border, remember. So if a Spanish caja has borrowed from a German savings bank, it'll be here. Uh, so it's just the eurozone, and we see this dramatic increase from one and a half trillion to over five trillion uh, over uh, these these uh, eight-year, this um, nine-year period. And um, how was it um, how was it um, uh, being financed? Well, a lot of it was through uh, the claims of other European banks on counterparties in Spain and in Ireland. So here are the claims of European banks on counterparties in Spain. And the counterparties would be other banks. So these will be the savings banks, in particular, in Spain. Uh, so for example, in, in Spain, Germany was very important. Uh, for Ireland, the UK was very important. But these sums are, are, are both large and absolute amounts. But the growth is really uh, what's really very striking. And that's all reflected in the current account deficit of, um, of Spain and Ireland. So the current account deficit was being financed through the banking sector. So to, to put this in concrete terms, imagine uh, German banks lending to, to Spanish savings banks, and then Spanish savings banks are lending, lending this money on to the Spanish borrowers. So the direction of money, money flow is from Germany into Spain, and then also from Germany into Ireland, or perhaps from the UK into Ireland. And what's happened uh, since last year uh, is that that flow has just stopped? we have seen a sudden stop, so just as the banks started to flee Korea, we 've seen the same kind of fleeing from Greece uh, sorry from from Ireland and from Spain I mean Greece is a separate matter okay. so what 's been happening is that it 's now the euro system it 's the ECB which is now collecting the deposits from the banks and it 's now then on lending it to uh, to prevent to make up for this for this run so the So the the private sector money is fleeing, but the European Central Bank is making up for for that gap by lending directly. And how do we know this? Well, let's look at some of the numbers for for Spain, which are actually really dramatic. So so these numbers are are, um, are really very unusual, um, even if you compare these uh, numbers to historical crises. Let's look at the total credit in Spain. So we're going from 92 uh, to June of this year, so this is a chart that I, that I prepared uh, last week. The green is if, uh, essentially the lending by the Spanish banks to, uh, to various businesses, but non-property related businesses. And then the other thing is at the top are non-profits and other unclassified <laughs> loans, but everything in grey are property related, so whether for mortgages or for commercial lending, uh, property developing house, home improvement, and we've reached something like 1.8 trillion at the peak. So that ratio, 1.8 uh, to uh, a Spanish GDP would be around a trillion. Okay. So this is a credit to GDP ratio of about 1.8. Now, in John's chart, for, for the assets to GDP, it was 300% because there are other assets of the bank other than credit. So you, know, you can hold securities, there are lots of other things on the, on the bank's balance sheet. But purely from a credit to GDP ratio, 1.8 is a very, very high number. That's, uh, for a country to be above 100 is unusual. Uh, To be above 1.8, that's just uh, very, very unusual. And you see how dramatic that, that, uh, that increase was. Now how were they funding this? So for this, we have to, so this is the asset side of the balance sheet, how the money was being used. So let's look at the liability side. So how were they raising the money in order to lend like this, well, a lot of it was was coming from domestic savers. So here's the 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 core funding, if you like, uh, of the Spanish banks, uh, and it reaches something like a trillion euros at the peak. Um, so it's both from from deposits, both from uh, households and non-financial companies, and also of securities and and other um, sources of funding. But to to give you a scale of what w- to what uh, what happened in Spain. Uh, Let's look at December 1999. So uh, there the core funding was around 400 billion euros. (coughs) What was the lending in uh, 1999? It's around 400 billion euros. So even as recently as 1999, so this is at the advent of the euro, the launch of the euro, all the funding in Spain could be met domestically. So we're looking at It's a wonderful life picture. So every mortgage that uh, goes to a Spanish borrower came from a Spanish saver. But that wasn't the case thereafter. So from thereafter, lending doubled essentially, Uh, so lending uh, um, uh, well quadrupled, more than quadrupled. But uh, deposits didn't uh, didn't quadruple. So we had funding going up to one trillion, but lending up to one point eight. So where did the other eight hundred billion come from? Well, it came from abroad. Well, it has to come from somewhere. If it's not coming from within Spain, it has to come from, from abroad. And this is the cross border element. And who were providing and, and who were the and who were the creditors? Well, let's look at who the creditors were shortly. But um, one way to look at the, the funding gap is to is through this picture. So what I've done here is to superimpose the credit chart and then take away the core funding, which is this, to leave the remainder, which is the red. Now, what's happened lately is that uh, the yellow has become very important. So as the red is now fleeing from Spain, the ECB I- is, is chipping in with its own money uh, in order to prop up uh, the banking sector in, in Spain. And this red, of course, is, is, has grown dramatically this year. And it's set to become even more important. That, but one question is, why didn't the red run as quickly as in Korea? So in Korea, that, it ran overnight, and within three months, it was over. And the country was on its back, but uh, uh, it was over very, very quickly. Uh, but this is going to last a long time, and the answer to that lies in the fact that uh, the liabilities are very different uh, for Spanish banks as they are for Korean banks. They tend to be very long-term. And, um, and a lot of it is in the form of covered bonds, covered bonds. Now covered bonds are IOUs written by banks but they're very special IOUs because they are legally, uh, so the banks are legally required to back these IOUs with specific assets on the bank's balance sheet. So they are segregated assets, and the holders of these IOUs have first claim on, on those assets. So that looks like a mortgage-backed security, you might think, but it's even safer than a mortgage-backed security because what the covered bond does is to say, well, not only do you have the security of, the, of these assets that are segregated, but uh, you, you also have the full backing of the bank itself. So if the bank defaults on this, the bank is also liable to pay you from other sources. And this is the, uh, the total amount of covered bonds in the whole world. Uh, outstanding, between 2003 and 2011, we see this huge increase. And a lot of it is uh, in the Germany and Denmark have traditionally been very big borrowers in the covered bond market. But the really uh, noteworthy series is the is the red, which is in, in Spain, and this chart gives you a sort of a, it's the same chart, but um, given you giving it a relative scale. Uh, the red bars you can see has overtaken everyone else. Now these are fairly long term securities, um, but uh, and so this is not like Northern Rock's short term three month paper, and then you know the when when that flees they have to um, uh, seek lender of last <laughs> lender of last to support. This is something which is going to run very, very slowly. Uh, what this means is that we will see solvency problems before we see liquidity problems. And this is uh, something that the Spanish authorities are, are very well aware of. This is a sense of how long, um, how long maturity these securities are. The tall bars are the stocks and the, the yellow bars are the new issuance. So if you think that the ratio is roughly the same, we're, we're talking about uh, maturities of six or seven years. So they will run off eventually, but not before uh, uh, many of these loans uh, start to go bad. So here's the really important question, which is who was lending to the Spanish banks? Um, These are the holders of, um, of of the covered bonds, all the covered bonds arranged by nationality. And it turns out that Germany Investors in Germany are the, are the biggest holders. And which institutions in Germany in particular, well, it turns out that the banks are very important. So banks in dark blue, uh, they're also asset managers. And so with a little bit of exaggeration, you can draw the following conclusion, uh, that, it, that the typical lender to a Spanish savings bank is a German savings bank. It's a German bank. It's a German... Landis Bank, or it could be a local um, uh, cooperative savings bank. That money was crossing the border into Spain, and that was what it, uh, enabled the lending to take place. Now, if, you, if, you, uh, if you're sympathetic to the argument that the lending that's financed by uh, this non-core funding is subject to lower credit standards, then I think the conclusion must be that that, that, that a lot of the lending that we saw, a lot of the dramatic lending that we saw in the latter years of the bubble, are the ones that are the most uh, vulnerable um, to to the bad loan problem. So this this chart here. Now, the the Spanish government commissioned uh, Oliver Wyman, which is a consulting company, uh, to come and do a stress test of how much new capital that the Spanish banks need. And the, the number they came back with was €60 billion, Euros, which is around 3% of the pre-crisis assets. And it was a very careful study. They did a bottom-up study. Um, so the question was, how much of the, the loans will eventually go bad and will need to be borne by the banks themselves? If you believe that the economy is going to be depressed for a long time, 3% seems like a very uh, very small number. So, the, so if you were more pessimistic, you'd say the eventual losses from this would be would be, mar- would be far would be far larger. In which case, the resolution is going to be that much tougher as well, especially because we had this dramatic increase in the years before before Lehman. So, what is the answer? Um, well, I think this is where. Uh, well, so so let me give you um, another parallel. So, I've mentioned the parallel between. Korea and Spain, uh, but because of the long-term nature of the liabilities, uh, because the ECB is backing up Spain with its liquidity, there is also quite a strong parallel between Spain and Japan. And Japan is is an economy that had a huge (laughs) bubble and, and a bust, but it never really had a liquidity problem, because it's a country that's flush with deposits. The households are flush with money, and uh, therefore, there was never a run from, from the banking sector as a whole. And uh, here's a chart that shows you, shows you that particular lesson. So this is from the Bank of Japan's website. The red is the total loans by Japanese banks in hundreds of trillions of yen. So think of this as, uh, uh, think of this as roughly a uh, trillion dollars. So if you take a 100 to 1 exchange rate. Now there's a brief period when the loan-to-deposit ratio was roughly the same. So think of M2 as total deposits. There was a roughly, um, you know, there, there, was a, there was a period in, in, in the run-up when the lending and the deposits were pretty much keeping track. Uh, but then they started to diverge, and now, of course, the loan-to-deposit ratio is far lower. So if you like, the core funding is much more important. So, it, so in this sense... Uh, Japan never really had a liquidity crisis. It, it's always been a solvency crisis. But the other striking factor is Japan, the Japanese banks didn't deleverage. So it didn't actually uh, resolve its bad loans until about seven years after the crisis. So the stock market crash came in 1990. Uh, the property bubble burst in 1992. So whichever date you pick, uh, the crisis was in the early 90s. But you see that the lending only peaked in 1998. It was only at that point that they really grasped the bull by the horns, and then they started to restructure the banks. And this is just an illustration of the difficulty of, the, you know, the political difficulty of restructuring your banks. And we see it in play exactly in Spain now. It's just very, very difficult politically to close down a bank because there are various interested parties. It's a political decision, and uh, the things that are right to do in, in the long term are just very unpopular and will be lethal, will be absolutely lethal for the, for the government in place at that time. What's, uh, what's the contrast with the Eurozone? Well, here's the chart for the Eurozone. The loan to deposit ratio is much higher in the Eurozone. That's partly because uh, there are other sources of funding like covered bonds. But in general, European banks have been much more gung-ho. They've been much more um, uh, willing to draw on wholesale funding. But as of uh, September, and end of September, uh, we're, th- we're now levelling off. The level, uh, the low to deposit ratio has come down, but it's still above one. But the, r- but the really um, scary chart is this one, where I've superimposed the Eurozone on Japan. So the blue is the, is the total lending by Japanese banks and the red is the total lending by the Eurozone banks. And what I've done is pick the crisis date to be date zero, and I've measured the period after the crisis in months and the period before the crisis in months, and uh, the dotted line is the common crisis period. So let me draw your attention to a couple of features of this chart. The first thing is that the period leading up to the crisis, um, in both cases, you saw dramatic increases in lending. So, I mean, they're pretty much on top of each other. So the last four years before the crisis, the boom in Japan looks exactly like the boom in the Eurozone. The other feature, uh, which, is f- which is also very worrying in a way, is that um, the Eurozone has not started to deleverage yet. It has not really grasped the, the, the problem by the horns. As of September, so this is the latest data available, uh, we're now four years into the crisis, four years after the crisis, and we're pretty much tracking the Japanese route. Now, um, as long as the ECB is there to, to prop up the system, there's going to be no problem with liquidity. I think you know, there, there are political hurdles to, to surmount, but uh, you know, Mario Draghi is very skillful politically, uh, he will find a way to use the ECB's balance sheet to provide liquidity. What the central bank cannot do, however, is to solve the solvency problem. So if the loans were granted when the lending standards were very low, they will all eventually go bad. And some have already gone bad, and the longer the Spanish economy is depressed, the more will will go bad. And so given that the run-up is very similar, uh, the solution has to be that in the end uh, this lending has to be resolved. But we are four years into the crisis, and we're following the Japanese route. Uh, so, um, if this goes on for another three years, then it'll be exactly the Japanese route. Uh, if it if it starts to come down before, then it's uh, that, you know then of course um, uh, it will improve the f- from the Japanese outcome. Uh, this this of course is also you know will have its collateral damage in that. Um, it will mean that uh, uh, the financing and the fiscal transfers will have to be in place in order for you to resolve these, these bad loans. But as the Japanese discovered, it's not enough just to keep pumping liquidity. Uh, because a bad loan is a bad loan. And eventually you have to resolve it. Uh, it's a question of when rather than whether. And uh, the, the sooner you do it, uh, the less economic damage there will be. And then you will um, actually um, set the stage for for rebounding growth, let me um, skip China, which is a which is a big thing to skip. But uh, let me let me skip China because I want to address uh, macro prudential regulation, which uh, which uh, Stan alluded to this morning. So this is the frontier of um, this is the frontier actually of uh, financial stability analysis, and I think th- this is an area which cuts across micro macro. Uh, finance, economics, but it's an area which is, uh, which needs the skill from all these fields. Uh, it's really an essential field that, to, to develop. Um, why do we need macroprudential? Well, I think uh, any policymaker uh, will, will, will tell you why. And it's, it's because uh, there are things that uh, the micro, current microprudential regulations do not address. So the two big blind spots are, firstly, that it doesn't address this lending boom. It doesn't actually address uh, excessive asset growth. Because what, what the microprudential will say is, how much of a buffer do you have? And unfortunately, the buffer is, looks the thickest, looks the plumpest uh, just before the crisis. And secondly, it doesn't look at the liability side. It doesn't look at how you finance the lending. And in a way, these two are really, um, if you like, the starting points of the macro potential group. Let me give you some, some illustrations of these two points. Here's a, so let's not pick on Spain too much. Here's a case from Ireland. So this is, AIB, uh, this is allied Irish banks. The, the lending growth of AIB before the crisis was really quite phenomenal. We have annual growth of lending of not only double digits but 30%, 40%. And, lo- and uh, non-performing loans The bad loans in your books were minuscule, and they were falling. And of course, they're always at their lowest before the crisis. And then once the train hits the buffer, then of course this this just shoots up. What about the capital ratios? The capital ratios look at their healthiest before the bubble bursts. That's because the banks have been profitable. And remember, these are capital ratios to risk-weighted assets. And do you remember those dark dots? The dark dots are very flat, which means that even though you're 50 times leveraged, as uh, John was uh, describing, the denominator in your calculation is very small because the risk weights are tiny. So for AIB, capital ratios were at their highest in 2006, and they were still very healthy in 2007. So what you need is some other tools, and... (coughs) So one of the things I do in my spare time is to do these kinds of... um, um, so engineering type of exercises, where uh, I go and uh, look at various tools that one can actually use. And some of them actually have been, uh, have been used. As, as, as Jim said, I, uh, I was a government official in Korea a couple of years ago and was instrumental in bringing some of these uh, uh, tools in, in place. Now they're actually quite well uh, bedded down and uh, they seem to be working pretty well. Broadly speaking, you can divide these in, into an asset-side tool like a loan-to-value cap or um, a straight leverage cap. Or you can target the liability side directly. So what, what Korea did was to introduce a levy on the foreign exchange denominated liabilities of um, of the banking sector. So this is the wholesale funding levy, if you like. So this is very much a Pigou, a Pigouvian tax. Um, and uh, we felt that this was going to be much more effective than simply a blanket ban. <coughs> because the way that, for example, the the Volcker rule tries to do things is to uh, write down a list of things they want. You know they would like to, to ban, and then they ban it. So this is a typical lawyer's um, approach to a problem, which is to say, here are the things that we don't want to see, and then let's let's ban them. So we ban A, we ban B, and we ban C. And then someone says, well, what about D? D looks like it looks a bit like A, but it's not quite. They say, well, for for in case of B, uh, well, in, in the case of D, if uh, these conditions hold, we treat it as A. If not, then we then we treat it as something else. And then someone raises their hand. Well, actually, well, here's another case, uh, which just falls on the bo- on the border between between these these kinds. Of, well, then you need another set of rules. And then soon these rules multiply, uh, and and you have a rule book which is many thousands of pages, which is just uh, asking for people to come and uh, to come and uh, circumvent. Uh, and in in a way, the the much more effective tool, uh, and from an economics perspective, uh, this certainly seems right. You should use the price mechanism. Uh, to do do its work for you. So the the levy uh, has the the virtue that it it actually works with the price system. And the banks may then then actually pass on some of the levy. But that's okay too, because in the end, uh, whoever was using the US dollar uh, denominated credit uh, will be paying the social cost of, of, of having done that, too. And then the allocation between the borrower and lender, I mean, that's really a market decision. Um, of course, not all of these tools are suitable for every country. So, uh, depending on whether you have independent monetary policy, depending on whether you have a closed economy, depending on whether you have a banking system at all, uh, then the prescriptions will differ as to which, uh, which kind of tools you would use. So, for instance, if you're Hong Kong, you have no independent monetary policy because you, you have a currency board with... Uh, Pins the US dollar. Therefore, you have to use a lot more, you have to rely a lot more on these macroprudential tools than the traditional monetary policy tools. Um, and a lot depends on how open your banking system is to uh, to wholesale funding. So, if you're a career, the banking sector is highly open, which means that um, the degree of autonomy of monetary policy is going to be severely limited by. Uh, by the uh, susceptibility of uh, liquidity conditions to, to international markets, whereas if you're uh, in India or China, uh, where the banking sector is closed, then you have much more, um, uh, much a, a much bigger lever to use monetary policy tools. Although, as we see in uh, as we see in China, it's actually uh, uh, there are ways of circumventing that too. Now this is uh, a field wh- where uh, it's much more like engineering. It's like building a bridge rather than writing these theory papers that uh, that Jim alluded to. So this is this is this is really messy, and it's very political. Um, and you know, I'm I'm I i i should not really sort of speak in front of Stan. But uh, uh, so one thing I learned as a, as a policymaker was that although as as economists we we're very good at uh, and we're trained to optimize subject to constraints, and we take the constraints as given. Uh, in practice, most of the time is spent trying to relax the constraints. Uh, it's really the constraints that really should be relaxed rather than... Uh, the optimization is easy. I mean, that's really textbook stuff. But the constraints are very hard. <laughs> and I think we... Uh, and in Stan's lecture this morning, we, we saw exactly how, how hard those, those constraints are. So let me finish the... Uh, we have uh, eight minutes or so for questions. So. Um, if the government imposes the social cost onto the um, people that are providing wholesale funding, for instance, does that imply in distressed state, states of the world that the government should then be willing to basically bail out financial institutions? So that depends very much on uh, how you set up the levy. Yeah. So, uh, so what we did was we, we, we were very careful uh, not to make this into an insurance fund. Uh, so, the, so, so the German system is that the levy funds a, a banking insurance fund. And then there is a sense of entitlement to that money. And that clearly shouldn't be there. Nor should it be a fiscal measure. Uh, and and the UK levy is very much a fiscal measure. So it's, uh, it goes into the general budget. It's a seven basis point levy on the wholesale funding. It goes into the general budget. And then as soon as it becomes a fiscal measure, it becomes political. Uh, and changing the rate, changing uh, the structure, has to go through the legislature. And um, That is a very, I mean, that really is just uh, opening yourself up to some impossible political constraints. So what we did was uh, we set it up as a special account of the foreign exchange reserves. And there is no sense of entitlement, and it just accumulates in the foreign exchange reserves. Um, The revenue is very secondary. Uh, It's not, uh, and the rate can be changed, so the legislation has, has allowed the rate to change uh, to be changed by the Minister of Finance rather than going through the legislature. So this is very important. So it's very important that it's a levy rather than a tax. If it's a tax, then it's, then it's a real headache. Um, Professor Shin, um, what are your views on carry trades, on, on regulating carry trades? So let's say you're in charge of Japan, how would you regulate the end carry trades? Uh, I, I think that depends very much on whether you're on the receiving end or the sending end. I think for Japan, you're very much the sending end. Uh, I think if I were... I think for Japan, the, uh, the carry trade you know, would not be something that they figure very highly, although from the context of international cooperation, it's something that they would mention. It's much more of an issue if you're on the receiving end. Um, and It's one of the constraints on monetary policy that I alluded to earlier. So one of the reasons why uh, global interest rates are so low is partly because the dollar rates, the the US dollar interest rates are so so low. Even in Australia, uh, it's above three percent. And so, um, if you like the, um, this is another way of of looking at that. Uh, Carry trades has the connotation that it's somehow swashbuckling traders and hedge funds that are doing this. Uh, I just want to emphasize that uh, there are, there are carry-trade elements to even very ordinary-sounding transactions. And, uh, For example, if a non-financial company borrows in U.S. dollars in order to hedge some export receivable, export uh, invoice, then in the broader context, that is a, uh, you know, a carry-trade as well, and the aggregate balance sheet is going to be affected by that. Arguably, so is QE. And so is QE as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Other questions? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm struck by both your and John's comments about this the dramatic increase in bank to bank buying, which went on in uh, the run up to uh, Just relating back to your point, a lot of that was actually covered bonds, so long term. Within so, Europe, it was. Within yes. Europe, so long term yeah. stable funding. <coughs> Is there anything we're kind of missing here in banks' ability to create term stable funding? Through things like bank-to-bank borrowing using covered kind of bonds. So the um, uh, so I think this is one of the things that, uh, uh, that I uh, that I disagree with some of my colleagues. Actually, so so some of my colleagues have the criterion uh, they just look at whether the funding is stable or not. If it's stable, then it's fine. Uh, I think my view is that um, uh, that is certainly. <laughs> an element that is, that's going to uh, immunise you from the Korean scenario, but it's not going to immunise you from this uh, insolvency scenario, because if you look at this, if you think about this this earlier chart uh, of the non-core-to-core funding, this grey, the new lending, which is financed with wholesale funding. So you only tap the wholesale funding because you have run out of core funding. And why have you run out of core funding? Well, Because you're, l- you're lending beyond what you would normally do. And so the funding that's... Uh, so the lending that is funded by that tends to have a much lower credit standard. So uh, whether it's stable or not, that's a secondary issue. The solvency is really very much about uh, whether, it, whether it's uh, a high quality or a low quality credit. So merely um, ensuring that the funding is stable is not going to ensure financial stability in this sense. You have to also address the lending standard. And this is why capital flows really... Uh, so so uh, um, if, you, if you spoke to European policymakers 10 years ago, they would say, well, now we are just one economic area. So you know, capital flows from Germany to Spain, that's like capital flows from Manchester to London, or vice versa. Why should that matter? Uh, well, it matters because the banking system is very segregated. So when you see capital flows, the banking sector is highly segregated. And yet capital flows allowed cross-border lending and this kind of thing happening uh, in your own currency. So that was the other element which really uh, blew this up. Right. I, there will be an opportunity for people to ask questions in the panel session. So let's just call a halt to this here. And uh, I'd just like to thank Hughes for living up to his reputation. I'm sure you'll agree, a really lucid and clear uh, analysis of the critical issues. So thank you very, very much.